Welcome to the 24-week lecture series by Dr. Avraham Giliotti, Dreams, Visions, and Near-Death Experiences Compared to the End-Time Prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 5, The Mission of the 144,000. Our fifth class is on the 144,000. Who are they? This is from DNC 77, where there's an explicit answer the Lord gives through the prophet Joseph Smith about who the 144,000 are. What are we to understand by the sealing of the 144,000 out of all the tribes of Israel, 12,000 out of every tribe? From the book of Revelation, we are to understand that those who are sealed are high priests ordained unto the holy order of God to administer the everlasting gospel. For they are they who are ordained out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people by the angels to whom is given power over the nations of the earth to bring as many as will come to the church of the firstborn. Now the church of the firstborn are the elect of God, or just men made perfect. So that means that these who are bringing people to that level of calling election made sure means that they must be on a higher spiritual level than those to whom they minister. Even higher than those on the elect level. And that, that we discover from Isaiah is the seraph level. I had a friend uh, who served a mission in England from Holland. And when he was on his mission, uh, Elder Kimball came to, to the mission and asked the missionaries, what is your mission? And one gave one answer, one gave another. But he said, your real mission is that of the 144,000, when you'll go forth with power and convert thousands upon thousands all at once. He said, some of you will still have children at home, and you'll put your wives and children in the safe places when you go, and there'll be, you'll have translation devices the size of a cigarette case. He says, I'm not supposed to know what a cigarette case looks like, <laughs> but this, that was before the digital age, and now we have those devices today. From Matthew 24, it says, He shall send his angels with the great sound of a trump, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That too is 144,000 who are translated beings. Recall that of the three Nephites, it says they were as the angels of God. They could come and minister between the worlds, as all translated beings do. From one end of heaven to the other, because they are in many different places. And that will surprise people. If you look in Deuteronomy, Moses talks about the ends of the earth and the ends of heaven as well. From Isaiah 57, 1 through 2, the righteous disappear and no man gives it a thought. The godly are gathered out, but no one perceives that from impending calamity the righteous are withdrawn. They who walk uprightly shall attain peace and rest in their beds. This harks back to the angels coming to get Lot out of Sodom to escape Sodom's destruction, which is a type from the past that Isaiah draws upon. So while the rest of the world is going through destruction... These people are resting safely in safe places. These are called the daughter of Zion in the book of Isaiah. They are the same as the woman who flees into the wilderness in the book of Revelation for whom a safe place is prepared in the wilderness. Now we go to Visions of Glory which talks extensively about the 144,000 because that is what Spencer was involved in. And he sees those things that he was involved in. He says, The 144,000 consisted of all those who had been called to gather in the elect 
of God. There you, there you go, the elect of God on the, uh, the level of just men made perfect or the church of the firstborn. By use of the portals and seer stones, or whatever means the Lord chooses. As more people were translated and gained the seer stones, they became a member of the 144,000. It was not a calling from the church because it involved no presidency or stewardship. It was a result of a lifetime of spiritual evolution. In the very beginning, Christ personally attended to the translation of people. I recorded my own ordination to pass this terrestrial gift to others and my assignment to do so. In time, many thousands were empowered to bestow this gift upon worthy souls, and they did so till all the world was changed. I imagine that the three Nephites, of whom it says that they shall yet perform a greater marvelous work on the earth, will also have this seeming power. Enoch and his people were a big part of this work and this gathering. Now remember that the gathering is of the house of Israel. And the house of Israel are the natural branches of the olive tree. And this ties in with uh, Jacob 5 and Zenos' allegory of the olive tree, where the one servant is given power to go and get other servants to help him graft in the natural branches and to cut off some of the worst branches of the, of the main tree, which is full of fruit by this time and none of it any good, it says. So this new event signals the gospel turning from the Gentiles back to the house of Israel when the Gentiles reject it. And we are the Gentiles by Book of Mormon definition. We are of Ephraim that is assimilated into the Gentiles and is now coming out of the Gentiles to perform his birthright role, as we mentioned before. They contributed 12,000 gatherers to our number and worked with great power in the world. We watched them with admiration and followed their example and learned from their use of the gifts. They were very accomplished in their translated state, and we honor them very much. Well, you can imagine that they've been translated for a long time, so there's a lot to learn that, from them. Among the 144,000 were men and women. Our powers were equal. There was no difference. Women were high priestesses, and men were high priests, and we worked side by side. There was always one priesthood holder who presided over whatever we did, but in reality, Christ was our head, and we all followed him. On that level, you do. We were sent as needed, sometimes just one of us, oftentimes two, and upon occasion, dozens were sent. We, we all had the seer stones, and we all understood the exact order of necessary events and the outcome of the mission. We did not all arrive at the same time, or from the same place, but we all arrived when needed. We knew each other, even when we were in our new personas. And the new personas is that they serve different missions and different personas, to people even going back and time traveling, as will, I think, as he mentions here in just a sec. The women in our group sometimes did most of the speaking and convincing. This is one of the, th the words that's used. Oh, you laugh, but... This is, one of the, this is one of the features of the translated state. They have the convincing power. That's also in the Book of Mormon. Look up the word convincing, and you'll see that it ties in with people on that spiritual level. Especially when our mission was to families or struggling women and children, of which there'll be many because so many men will perish in the wars. And also, many men are not as worthy as women are. Sometimes the brethren were called upon just to perform ordinances when the mission had reached that stage. Sometimes we posed as fellow wanderers, as husband and wife, or other roles. It was never the same. Sometimes we were sent to gather children, 
in which case the sisters played a very important and calming role. They were so filled with love and grace that the children instantly trusted them and we easily accomplished our work. It was as common for a sister to work a miracle just as the brethren. There was no difference between us in that regard. The only difference was that the brethren had the keys to perform ordinances or to preside when the Lord directed it. Our translated statue gave us greatly enhanced senses. We could visually see see visually and spiritually with great clarity over long distances. We could see all the spirits around us, both good and bad. When you think of this, you, you kind of think of Christ's ministry who could see all that too. He saw as, they, as he's describing here, and that's how he could tell what people were thinking and who they were and what spiritual level they were at. He could adapt his conversations to people on that spiritual level, whichever level they were on. So this spirit of perception is something that goes along with the translated state. We not only heard what was said, but their intent, their hearts and their plans. We knew what people were going to say or ask before they actually said it, and quite often we answered their unvoiced questions to further bless and inspire them. We knew how every word would be interpreted, how each act would affect the near future. We simply knew by the power of God everything we needed to do. So in a way, they were gods already. See that? When people reach the translated state, they are gods. It's interesting, the things that Moses and Elijah did in their day, the Canaanites had a religion called Baalism. They worshipped Baal, who ostensibly had this power over the elements and so forth. And Baal could restore fertility. He could bring rain. He could bring fire down out of heaven. He was the god of lightning and thunder. And actually, when Israel went through the Red Sea and Moses you know, put out his arm and dried up the sea, it was the power that the Canaanites would attribute to Baal that Moses had. And when Elijah raised the dead and stopped the river Jordan, the two... Um, false gods, the gods of chaos that Baal supposedly conquered in order to inherit the throne of his father god, El, were sea and river. They were called sea and river. And there we have Moses, you know, having power over the Red Sea and over the river. Joshua had power over the river. So in the Canaanite myth, they were on the level of their god, Baal. Because Baalism was a corruption of, of something true. And um, we have Baalism today. It's very, uh, it's everywhere in movie theaters. <laughs> the whole Baal myth is based on violence and sex. You read the Baal myth, it's like going to a movie today, based on violence and sex. Our intelligence was also dramatically increased. Like a chess grandmaster, we could discern complex solutions to anything we encountered, seeing the resulting chain of events long before they occurred. Which makes you think that Jesus knew everything that was going to happen ahead of time in his life. What reaction people would have to him, where it was all going to go. And he was okay with it. He came to do his father's will. Actually, this was a joy to me. Having done so much struggling to educate myself, I found I loved feeling my improved intellect, absorbing vast truths and solving impenetrable mysteries. With all this, we also adored receiving revelation and confirmation from our God that our conclusions were true and celestially purposed. In fact, this superhuman intellect was a revelation to us. It was lifting the veil just a little and revealing who we really were. And who are we really? Sons and daughters of God to become gods. And here they are. This is as far as you go 
in a mortal world, the translated state, I mean. The Hopi Indians also say that. If you go as far as you can go in this world, you don't have to skip three more worlds. But I think it all depends, too, on how far you were before you came here and what you'd be doing the rest of your life. Any grand miracle one reads about in the scriptures, which we rightly call miracles, was duplicated in far greater degree and with great regularity by the citizens and ministers of Zion. Miracles were routinely wrought that were far greater than dividing the Red Sea. In fact, miracles are really not miracles. They really are laws on a higher level in another dimension that we're not aware of. But if we knew how they work, they wouldn't be miracles to us. We always marvel, but we are no longer surprised by such things. We're experiencing another reason this was called the fullness of times because not only did we have all of these gifts and powers of God manifested hourly among us, but they were manifest with greater power in a greater degree than ever before in the history of the world. Well, why has all of this waited so long, right? I mean, why not bring it on now? Isn't that, you know, wouldn't that be nice? Well, it, it just doesn't work that way. You know that. You know that a lot has to be accomplished in our lives individually, in the world. The good and the evil have to rise in proportion to each other. And only when it does, when evil reaches its apex and the good reaches its apex, then can these changes happen. Then the Lord intervenes. The Lord is monitoring humanity's affairs based on many covenants that he has made he works only within the parameters of his covenants. He has to protect Abraham's descendants when their lives are endangered. That was a part of the covenant with Abraham. He has a covenant with David, so, which is about Israel's protection or the people's protection. Uh, he has a covenant with the house of Israel, a collective covenant, which is conditional at the present time. And all of these covenants have clauses and laws that he has to kind of monitor, and we have to live up to the terms of these covenants so that he can begin to perform the kinds of things that Spencer's talking about. They will happen, but they happen under his terms, and we have to qualify to merit those conditions, to merit those blessings, those empowerments. And we're not there yet. So it's pointless to ask, well, you know, why not now? If you're asking that question, don't see the answer, then Get your act together and be one of those that helps bring it about. There has to be a certain level of righteousness reach, not just individually among individuals, but the Lord's people as a whole have to reach a certain level of righteousness before he can act and say, okay, there's enough of you now, I can do this. Some members of 144,000 were sent on assignments that took years as they actually walked every step of the way with their charges back to Zion. Well, years almost becomes irrelevant because, because of time travel and the different personas. You're dealing with a celestial time zone. You're dealing with a terrestrial time zone for people on the terrestrial level at this point. And you're dealing with a celestial time, time zone for people on the celestial level. And you know that to God, one day is like a thousand years to us. You've got all these different ratios of time going on here. And time are just constructs that pertain to mortality. This is a virtual reality. This was particularly manifest in the gathering of some of the lost tribes. Some of my dear friends served in this very way, and their work was glorious. Their missions seemed to be more short-term. I would go and work with people, then return to Zion for a while, 
And when the Holy Spirit moved me, I would return to guide and encourage them. Well, doesn't that say that of translated beings in the scriptures? Of Elijah, the Spirit takes him from place to place. Nephi, the son of Helaman, wherever the Spirit takes him, he goes. It's that capability of translated beings that aids them to doing that work. When Alma said, Oh, that I were an angel could have the wish of my heart, he wanted to go to every, anybody, everywhere. Same wish as John the Revelator. Well, that wasn't just wishful thinking. It was an indication that, we, that he was ready for that role. And where did he go after that? Indeed, he was translated. They couldn't find him anymore because he was fulfilling that task. Time was very fluid for us. There were no deadlines. We'd go to any group, even into their past, and prepare them, then move forward in time and visit them again, or do anything the Lord directed us to do to accomplish our work. But even among the 144,000, not all of us learned to use time in the, in the way I just described. Everything depended upon agency and our diligence in learning how to use our gifts. Just as it had always been and always will be, not every translated person had the same gifts or even the same interests. We grew as our agency and inspiration guided us until we truly came to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, which is what Paul describes in the New Testament. If we were already attained the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ, then why do we need to go through so many things? No, this is part of our process in mortality. There are laws and there are higher laws. And as we keep higher laws, then we grow into this power. And then there are higher laws above that. And then we grow into that power until we reach the very highest. It was true that all the rest of the world was moving forward in time as it is now and as it continued throughout the millennium. Now remember, in the millennium, it's terrestrial time. The earth goes into a terrestrial glory. So for most people on the earth, it'll be terrestrial time. But for me and others of the 144,000, we'd go for months or years and arrive back a few minutes after we'd left. Since we were tireless and did not need to sleep or food, remember Jesus? He said, I have sustenance or food that you know not of. Similar to these beings. We could continue the pattern of service without end and we rejoiced in it. We grew weary neither in mind, soul, or body. That's in Isaiah 40, um, the last part of chapter 40, where it draws the contrast between youths who grow faint and weary. Youths, you know, have the most energy of all people. They reach the peak of energy, and yet they pale in comparison to the unweariness of God. And that unweariness of God is what they are expressing here. So they are becoming more godlike in their unweariness. It's like he said to Nephi, the son of Helaman, because you have not feared for your own life and have served me with unweariness, and now he's going to bless him with the sealing power and whatever he asks will be given to him because he knows that at that point in time in his spiritual progression, He's not going to ask for anything that's remiss. That's not God's will. So he makes them unwearying. He gives them the sealing power. And then on Nephi, the son of Helaman, is unwearying, as, as he's describing here. So do you see how all of that he describes is, fits right in with the scriptures? We just need to make the connections and just fill in the, you know, the blanks, connect the dots. Every day was a Sabbath to us, and we communed with God and renewed our covenants with every breath we took. Now think about that. Think about what that is like so that you are conscious of his presence with you at all times, from moment to moment, from day to day, from breath to breath. You're never not in his presence. You walk with God. You talk with God. 
He's there. He's guiding you. All you're doing is accomplishing His will. It is as if you're Him. He's your head and your heart. You're everything. You feel the way He feels. You see with His eyes. You hear with His ears. You discern with His discernment. We met often accompanied by angels and our Savior. That's physically this time. But I do not recall attending an organized sacrament meeting. It was only because of this ability to work with time as opposed to being subject to time that we actually completed the gathering prior to the Master's coming in glory. The preparatory work has to be done first before he can come. He's not going to come until there's a Zion people, like Enoch's people were a Zion people, to whom he could then come and dwell. There's the great type, and this is what he's describing. Close to the end of our ministry to gather his elect, there was a very large body of people who had the seer stones and who worked with us. But I do not believe there were exactly 144,000 of us. That number evolved daily and may actually have exceeded that number toward the end. Our numbers were great. Well, that is a marvelous thing. So you see that during their mission, people were spiritually progressing so they could uh, you know, be reborn on that spiritual level and be empowered on that spiritual level, whereas when they began their missions, they were not on that level. None of the 144,000, I believe, actually start off on that level. But they're like Nephi, the son of Helaman, who had to prove himself by not fearing for his own life and serving the Lord with unweariness. So there we have kind of a little backstory to how you become a translated being. Or John the Revelator, that his great desire was to bring souls unto Christ so long as the world should stand. If it took thousands of years, fine. He was willing to do that. And yet, it was not laborious. You see that. It wasn't a laborious work. They loved it. It was like they were on holiday. Every day was a Sabbath. They had great joy in their work. They wanted to do it, and it was a joy to do it. So that's different from now. All right, so let's go to some scriptures and see what we can find out. Isaiah 49. Thus says my Lord Jehovah, I will lift up my hand to the nations, raised by ensign to the peoples, and they will bring your sons in their bosoms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, queens your nursing mothers. That's in Isaiah. And that is as far as the Book of Mormon takes the role of the 144,000 or the kings and queens of the Gentiles. And then Jacob comes along. And who does he say? They will bow down before you, their faces to the ground. They will lick up the dust of your feet. Then shall you know that I am Jehovah and they that they who hope in me are not disappointed. Do you think that these queens and kings of the Gentiles who are doing this wonderful work of bringing the house of Israel to a level of God's elect, first of all, ministering to them spiritually to bring them up to that level and then physically bringing them out from dispersion, out of danger, like the angels bringing Lot out of Sodom? Do you think that these little people are going to bow down before the house of Israel to whom they're ministering? Of course not. So Jacob catches that, and if you knew Isaiah well enough, you'd catch it, because there are two kinds of Gentiles. These are the kings and queens of the Gentiles who are ministering to the natural branches of the house of Israel wherever the Lord has scattered them around the world. But the Gentiles, as we see throughout the Book of Mormon, when Nephi, Jacob, and Jesus, and Mormon, and others, and Moroni, are predicting the end time and they're speaking of the Gentiles, you always see this thing, that these Gentiles over here harden their hearts, and these ones over here repent. 
These ones see no need to repent. They're, they have the gospel. They have a kind of self-righteousness. They're, doing, they're going through all the motions that they think. But, you know, along comes the Lord does something new and we see, hey, there are many things to repent of, such as this. How are we going to measure up to the spiritual level unless we're seriously repenting still? Have we made sure our calling election? And if we haven't, then we have something to repent of, right? So the process of repenting never ends. If you haven't figured it out, then take, take stock of your life. Uh, go through your 24 hours of your day and say, this is furthering the Lord's work. This is, this is, uh, this is not. And I'm going to cross that one off. I'm going to sacrifice whatever that is I'm spending my time on and get rid of it out of my life. And you go down the list and periodically review your list. And then pretty soon, as you begin keeping higher laws and cutting out the lesser laws or the things that are not that great, then you'll see your spirituality improve. You'll see the Holy Spirit witnessing and testifying to you. You'll start having spiritual experiences. You'll recognize truth quicker and, and instantly as soon as you hear it and see it. Even when the rest of the people are saying, no, that's not true. You'll recognize it. It'll be, it's, it'll be in you. It's in your heart. So, as Jacob says, it's those Gentiles that harden their hearts. They will bow down before the house of Israel, their faces to the ground. They will look up the dust of your feet. That's when the Lord reverses the circumstances of the repenting Gentiles and the Gentiles who harden their hearts. And you remember Nephi's definition of hardening the heart. We talked about it, right? What was that? That Laman Lemuel, they simply did not inquire of what Lehi, their father, saw when he had his tree of the life vision. They simply didn't ask or inquire. They just assumed that the Lord would make nothing known to them like that. That is his definition of hardening the heart. Let's change our own definition of what it means to harden our hearts and go along with the scriptural one. That'll help us apply all things to ourselves for our profit and learning, the inconvenient truths first. Then possibly we might qualify for those wonderful, exalting and glorious truths that the scriptures mention. This continues on from the previous verses. Why is that there? This is kind of a context we need to take notice of. Can the warrior's poor be taken from him or the tyrant's captives escape free? Who is this warrior and tyrant? Is it a person or is it just any old tyrant and person and warrior? No, it's a specific person in the book of Isaiah. It's the king of Assyria, the arch-tyrant. The tyrant of all tyrants. who's going to come on the scene in the end time and do his thing in opposition to what God is doing. So it's a specific person and he's going to take captives. The same as the Assyrians took captive the ten tribes anciently, so this end-time king of Assyria, or king of Babylon, is going to take captive the ten tribes again. Where are they? Well, they're in the north countries. Where are the north countries? Well, take a look at the earth map. Yet thus says Jehovah, the warrior's spoil shall indeed be taken from him, and the tyrant's captives escape free. I myself will contend with your contenders, and I will deliver your children. I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh. They shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine, 
and all flesh shall know that I, Jehovah, am your Savior, that your Redeemer is the valiant one of Jacob. When does that happen? Is he going to just step in and do that? Hardly. He's going to have his emissaries. He's going to have his 144,000. He's going to empower those who reach a high spiritual level as 144,000, and then he can reverse their circumstances. Remember the terms of the covenant. I think we've discussed them. When do the curses of the covenant, or when, do, when does disaster or, or, or destruction come upon the enemies of God's people? It comes when the enemies of God's people, God's people reach a stage of righteousness on the elect level or higher, like on the serf level, and they are keeping the terms of the covenant faithfully, and they're tried and proven that they'll do so under all circumstances. And when they have been shown to prove faithful to the Lord under all conditions, then the Lord reverses their circumstances, and not until then. That's why the evil has to reach its apex, and the good has to rise above it. Then the curses of our covenants that we've made with God come upon them, and not until then. So that's when this reversal happens and the warrior's spoil is taken from him and the tyrant's captives. When he tries to eliminate and destroy those elect, then the curses of their covenants come upon him and then he comes to, to an end. Then all the things that he thought to do and did upon the Lord's righteous people then come upon him. Second Nephi 10. Behold, thus says the Lord God, when the day cometh that they shall believe in me, that I am Christ, now he speaking of the house of Israel. Then I have covenanted with their fathers that they shall be restored in the flesh upon the earth unto the lands of their inheritance. Now believing thus doesn't mean, you know, believing in Christ, the evangelical version of belief. If you believe in him, then you believe in him all the way. And it shall come to pass that they shall be gathered in from their long dispersion, from the isles of the sea, from the four parts of the earth, and the nations of the Gentiles shall be great in the eyes of me, says God, in carrying them forth to the lands of their inheritance. This is a physical gathering. This is not something that's happened yet. It's quoting from Isaiah chapter 49, which we just read, about the kings and queens of the Gentiles. We also see it in chapter 60 of Isaiah. So first they minister to them spiritually, and then they gather them physically in an exodus. It's a literal physical exodus that Isaiah and other prophets predict that resembles Israel's ancient exodus out of Egypt. They come in a literal physical exodus, all at once. And it's the very thing that Spencer describes. Only, as Isaiah predicts it, the exodus is from the four parts of the earth, or wherever they are scattered, to the four winds. Remember, remember, the book of Isaiah is an end-time scenario. It hasn't started yet. Remember that when you consider the bad news that we had earlier, as well as the good news. The kings of the Gentiles shall be nursing fathers unto them, their queens shall become nursing mothers, wherefore the promises of the Lord are great unto the Gentiles, for he has spoken it, and who can dispute? Remember, in the Book of Mormon, the gospel is restored to the Gentiles. And it goes from the fullness of the Gentiles to the house of Israel, their descendants, and to the Jews and to the ten tribes. 
But the fullness of the Gentiles, by definition, are the seed of Ephraim, because that's what Jacob calls Ephraim's lineage. In uh, Genesis 49, when he lays his right hand on Ephraim's head and blesses him, that his offspring will become the fullness of the Gentiles, which the King James mistranslates. But behold, this land, said God, shall be a land of thine inheritance, shall be a land of thine inheritance, and the Gentiles shall be blessed upon the land, and this shall be a land of liberty unto the Gentiles. There shall be no kings upon the land who shall raise up unto the Gentiles. And I will fortify this land against all other nations, and he that fighteth against Zion shall perish with God. Now, take stock of what it's saying. Just don't go through and read, you know, sentence after sentence, verse after verse. It gets you nowhere practically because you'll miss the entire meaning that is spoken here. First is a land of liberty unto the Gentiles, and there's no kings. Well, we have you know, a system of government where that's prohibited. If he's going to fortify this land against all other nations, it means that there's a protection here that God has guaranteed if we keep the terms of the covenant. And he that fighteth against Zion shall perish, saith God. What is that doing there? Well, when you look and see who it is that fights against Zion, that's mentioned in chapter 29 of Isaiah once, fighting against Zion. But in the Book of Mormon mentions it many times. Why? We're going to see that those Gentiles who harden their hearts eventually fight against Zion along with the great and abominable church. So some Gentiles are going to, right in the midst of us, are going to persecute the righteous among us, those who repent, that is, not righteous by God's standard, not by our own standard of self-righteousness. And they're going to do that by degrees, as we saw in 2 Nephi 28, where they keep rejecting the truth and rejecting the truth. And seven curses come upon them, 2 Nephi 28, and eventually they deny Christ. That's where the chapter ends. So they end up fighting against Zion. So it's, it's homegrown sentiment. It's not somebody else coming from out of nowhere. It's right here. For he that raises up a king against me shall perish. For I, the Lord, the king of heaven, will be their king, and I will be a light unto them forever that hear my words. Well, that would not be there unless there are going to be attempts to set up a king in the land. That's not just, oh, by the way, No. They, they have seen our day, and they say that specifically to warn us. And so, it's a, as it mentions, secret works of darkness. I'll read the rest. Wherefore, for this cause that my covenants may be fulfilled, which I have made unto the children of men. That fulfilling of the covenants is a theme all through the Book of Mormon. What covenants? The Abrahamic covenant, the Sinai covenant, the covenant with King David and his, and his heirs. The covenant of King David and his heirs allows us, who come through the Gentile lineages, to become kings and queens and to the house of Israel by fulfilling the terms of the Davidic covenant, partly because of who we are, because of our lineages, and partly because we've been foreordained for that, and because we rise up to that level of righteousness. So the Nephites, seeing our day and knowing that their descendants are going to be in a lost and fallen state, are looking forward over and over 
You'll see it in the Book of Mormon how concerned they are that their descendants someday would be restored to the truth. Who's going to do it? Well, we are. That's the birthright role of Ephraim. If we don't do it, it's not going to happen. Some of us has to, have to rise to the occasion to do this. Moses rose to the occasion and took Israel out of Egypt from bondage. He trusted in the Lord to empower him to do it. We have to go back and look at the terms of these covenants and say, okay, well, what then does it require that we should, that we should do? What exactly are the things that we have to do? We have to go through all the scriptures that talk about those who save others. Nephi, unto whom you look as a king and a protector. If we're going to be kings, we have to be protectors. Protectors under the terms of the Davidic covenant, which means we have to answer for the disloyalties of those for whom we have a stewardship. We have to pay a price. Why does Spencer talk about the fellowship of the suffering of Christ? Because that's part and parcel of being a proxy savior to the house of Israel. And about the time that there are attempts to set up a king in the land, that is the time when these kings and queens of the Gentiles start fulfilling their roles. Because here in this, in 2 Nephi 10, the two are set juxtaposed with each other. Just as in Spencer's book, the satanic cult in the South Pacific was juxtaposed with the apostle who was interceding on his behalf and suffering in the cause of Christ, offering his afflictions as Hezekiah did to that, for that purpose. Hezekiah paid a price. He suffered nigh unto death. We read it in this class. And then in, on the heels of that suffering, when the Lord saw that his price was paid, he said, now I'll protect you in this city. And he extended Hezekiah's life. And the angel of the Lord slew 185,000 of, of the besieging Assyrians. Connect the dots when you read these things. Be analytical. Be typological. Not logical. Search. Search what? Make connections. Use concordances. So I have a translation and a concordance in one book. You can look up how Isaiah uses terms. Connect them over here. Connect them over there. Suddenly the scriptures start opening up to you. Wherefore, for this cause, that my covenants may be fulfilled, which I have made unto the children of men. Children of men? I thought it was the house of Israel. Yes, he does say that a lot in talking about fulfilling his covenants. I should have brought that paper. It's, I think it's at least 14 or 16 times that the Book of Mormon mentions these future events and, and the Lord or the Father fulfilling his covenants with the house of Israel. But why would he say here, the children of men? Who else has covenants? Well, the 144,000, duh. They have covenants with the Lord, and he's going to fulfill their covenants too. And what are their covenants about? They want to minister to the house of Israel and bring as many as they can to the church of the firstborn. They want to bring souls to Christ, so long as the world shall stand, or until the coming of the Lord. So you're going to fulfill their covenants as well. Children of men are just people across the board, right? Whoever qualifies, whoever has covenants, and is fulfilling the terms of his covenant or her covenant. That I will do to them unto them while they are in the flesh. I must needs destroy the secret works of darkness, of murders, and of abominations.
Well, all you need to do is go to YouTube or the Internet and look and see where this is happening all over. It's blatant now. There's almost no holds barred anymore. It's in your face evil now. So we must be approaching the time. We must be getting closer to the time, I would say. And it's for us to get our acts in order. Wherefore he that fighteth, fighteth against Zion, both Jew and Gentile, it's because you're of the chosen people doesn't mean anything if you choose, you know, use your agency contrary to God's will. Both bond and free, male and female, shall perish. For they are they who are the whore of all the earth. And in Isaiah, all of God's people who apostatize, the Gentiles with whom the gospel is now, as Jesus predicts in 35, 16 and 20 and 21, that those who reject the fullness of the gospel after they have received it, he says, they will be cut off among his people. How can you be cut off among his people unless you are his covenant people? For they who are not of me, for they who are not for me are against me, saith our God. Well, you know, what does for him mean? There are many different religions out there, supposedly all worshipping one God. I don't think so. Those who are for God are for Christ. Those who are for Christ are valiant in the testimony of Jesus, as it says of celestial persons in DNC 76. Of terrestrial people, it says, they're deceived because of the craftiness of men. Why? Because they're not celestial yet. Of the elect, it says, for all the rest, it says, Jesus says, if it were possible, they would deceive even the elect. There'll be such confusion in the end time. You're going to need that inner light. But if you were deceived, you'd not be the elect. Jesus says, if it were possible, the elect would be deceived. So the elect cannot be deceived because they have processed through all the lies and machinations and whatever Satan and men bring to bear that would persuade them. So for Christ means a lot of things. How far are you for Christ? All the way or just... Yeah, almost all the way, but, you know, I'm just going to hold back just a little bit. It doesn't work. He can't empower you like that. For I will fulfill my promises which I have made unto the children of men, that I will do unto them while they are in the flesh. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, thus saith our God, I will afflict thy seed by the hand of the Gentiles. Nevertheless, I will soften the hearts of the Gentiles, that they shall be like a father unto them. Wherefore, the Gentiles shall be blessed and numbered among the house of Israel. Now, look at the sequence here. When they serve as a father to them, who, which Gentiles? The ones that repent, of course. The ones that repent of all their materialism, all their idols that we have today. It characterizes our Babylonian society. There cannot be any idols in our lives if we would serve Christ. Whatever distracts us from serving him has to go. Otherwise, you're deceiving yourself. What is his father unto them? Well, that is the role that um, Helaman had toward his stripling warriors. They called him father. And they, you know, he called them his sons. Those are covenant terms that mean proxy savior and those to whom he ministers. That's why they could not be killed because they, they kept his law and he kept God's law. So if we're going to be fathers to them, proxy saviors to them, 
and nurture them as kings and queens of the Gentiles, like foster fathers and nursing mothers, that simply means proxy saviors under the terms of the Davidic covenant. That is what Spencer saw when he spoke about sacrifice. But he said his sacrifice wasn't exactly what he had considered sacrifice to be before that. Because it requires a fulfilling the role of a proxy savior who answers to the emperor like a vassal to an emperor for the disloyalties of his people to the emperor. Well, I thought they were going to be the elect that we save. Yeah, but they're not the elect right away, right? DNC 77 said that we bring as many as we can to the church of the firstborn, but they don't start at the church of the firstborn level. We have to bring them to that point till they make sure their callings and elections. So in the meantime, while there's destruction going on all around, they nevertheless have to be protected from their enemies, the people of the house of Israel to whom we minister, let's say. But they're not perfect. They still are in a sinful state, some of them. So somebody has to answer for their disloyalties to the emperor so that the emperor can protect them as well as us, their proxy saviors. That's how the thing works. So while they're in that tentative state where they're just beginning to come into the gospel, to learn it, to accept it, to rise to a level of righteousness, because they're already pure souls. They, they were so before they came here. They just haven't got it all together quite yet. They need proxy savers during that interim period when they're vulnerable. That is when we perform the role of proxy savers for them. It doesn't go on forever and ever. Once they come on the, in the exodus, it's over. We've paid the price for them. They merited our physical protection. They measured up to the spiritual level of God's elect. Now they can come in the exodus, free of charge. God's protection will be there because he's bound by the terms of the covenant to protect them when they reach that spiritual level. Now they're their own proxy saviors. They can be like, like Lot in Sodom. The Lord delivered Lot for Abraham's sake, it says. The Lord remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. But he saved Lot's daughters for Lot's sake. And now they can bring their descendants with them or their offspring and be saviors to them like Lot was. Get the idea? But there's an interim period, there's a brief period where we need to answer for their disloyalties in the pattern of Christ, who is a proxy savior for us, who answered to the emperor, the most high God, for our disloyalties and who won our spiritual salvation by doing so. This here we're not talking about spiritual salvation. We're talking about temporal salvation, about physical protection, which they will need when they come in that exodus to be brought out of destruction, out of wickedness from evil rulers, from persecution by enemies, like the people of Enoch. Once they converted to the gospel from their wicked state, full of abominations and so forth, their enemies came against them. Who? Well, their own neighbors, their family, whoever turned against them. Maybe their own parents or their children. As Jesus says in Matthew 24, a man's enemies will be those of his own house. They're going to need protection at that time from us, through us. The Lord will protect them for our sake. 
that they shall be a father, like a father unto them, wherefore the Gentiles shall be blessed and numbered among the house of Israel. Why, it says in Genesis that Joseph in Egypt was a father to Pharaoh. What? A father to Pharaoh? Pharaoh put him in charge of Egypt. He was Pharaoh's right-hand man, so to speak. He administered the kingdom, but he was father to Pharaoh. In what sense? Well, spiritually, according to the terms of a proxy savior, those covenants are all through, you know, ancient Near Eastern history and the Old Testament. That's why the sons of Messiah could do what they did in converting thousands upon Lamanites all at once. But remember, there's always a price to pay. And we go into that role with our eyes open. And this is just in case you have doubts that we are not identified with the Gentiles. Latter-day Saints are identified with the Gentiles here in the Kirtland Temple Dedicatory Prayer by Joseph Smith. As by Book of Mormon definition, we are they. We're trying to identify who these 144,000 servants are. So, here's something from Isaiah 56, which is very interesting. Let not the foreigner who adheres to Jehovah say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, I'm but a barren tree. Now, the eunuchs and the foreigners were captives from other nations that people took, and they did the menial jobs in the country, yet they realized the good after a while, the benefits or the blessings of God's covenant with his people, and so they wanted to be part of it, but they couldn't because they were always looked down upon. And so they always feel on the outside, but what does the Lord say? These are the lowest rung of society. Thus says Jehovah, as for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose to do what I will, holding fast to my covenant, to them I will give a hand clasp and a name within the walls of my house that is better than sons and daughters. Because they can't have children because they're made eunuchs. I will endow them with an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Anything everlasting is a covenant. It's an unconditional covenant. So those eunuchs are paying with their eunuchs condition and their righteous desires and in serving God's people, they are paying for a higher spiritual status than some of the people to whom they're ministering. Does that make sense? Because juxtaposed with them in the same chapter are the highest, the highest rung of society, the prophets and the seers whom the Lord condemns and who are and we don't have that script, you'll have to go to it. But there was this juxtaposition between this group and the other group. These are the ones who he exalts, and the others are the ones he cuts off. What has Sabbath keeping got to do with this? Well, the Sabbath was a sign that God gave between him and his covenant people, which is an indicator of, of your relationship with him. How well you keep the Sabbath day, how well you revere the Sabbath to honor Him, to discuss no business matters, etc. Read chapter 58 of Isaiah. Your impeccable observance of the Sabbath day expresses the whole lot to Him about how you feel about Him. Choosing to do what He wills instead of our own self-will. 
How often does our own self-will get in the way? Holding fast to my covenant, whichever covenant that may be on any particular spiritual level, as you go higher, there's always a, a covenant and a higher law associated with it. A hand clasp in a name is what an emperor does to a vassal king when he accepts him unconditionally as his son. We learn that somewhere in the temple. And the foreigners who adhere to Jehovah to serve him, who love the name of Jehovah that they may be his servants, I believe that's the first instance where the term servants is mentioned in the book of Isaiah. So that means it's a word linked to all the other instances of the term servants in the book of Isaiah, which if you follow through, we're talking about the same servants as the 144,000 in the book of Revelation, or the same servants as the servants that the one servant gets to graft in the natural branches in Jacob 5 of the olive tree. So you can come from a very low estate, so to speak. Jesus said, some make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. So Isaiah is using things out of his history, out of his culture and milieu, to typologically project, to give us a precedent or a type of what constitutes the Lord's servants. So even from the lowest level in society, you can become one of the 144,000. These will I bring to my holy mountain and gladden in my house of prayer. Their offerings and sacrifices shall be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be known as a house of prayer for all nations. Yes, anciently it was the offering of beasts and sacrifices, but in the end time we become those sacrifices. We ourselves are those offerings. We ourselves are those immolations. When, when an animal was burnt, it immolated till there was nothing left. It was a complete offering of ourselves, a type of a complete offering of ourselves in the service of God, to honor Him and to praise Him. Thus says my Lord Jehovah, who gathers up the outcasts of Israel, I will gather others to those already gathered. Here is another type and shadow of who the 144,000 might be from Isaiah. Chapter 19, chapter 19 is about the great superpower, Egypt, which the only one that you know, matches today is America. And while all the rest of America is going down the tubes in the part of the chapter that precedes this, here there is a redeeming side. In that day the Egyptians will be as women, fearful and afraid of the brandishing hand Jehovah of hosts wields over them. Well, the hand is a pseudonym or a keyword or codename for the king of Assyria. And he's threatening Egypt. In fact, he invades Egypt and cleans it out. But there are others in the land of Egypt who are not fearful. The land of Judah shall become a source of terror to the Egyptians. Well, it could be Palestine, but it could also be Europe or some other you know, area of the, of the earth, because all of these names become code names for nations and areas in the end time. All reminded of it shall dread what Jehovah of hosts has in store for them. Remember that the Assyrians conquered Judea progressively. And so when you see, you know, co nations conquered progressively, as Hitler did during World War II, then, you know, it's going to come here too. Assyria was a nation that conquered other nations by degrees. When you read Isaiah, you'll see that was in their 
character to conquer the world. Eventually they want to conquer the world. In that day, five Hebrew-speaking cities in the land of Egypt will swear loyalty to the Jehovah of hosts. One shall be known as the city of righteousness. I think that the uh, King James has city of destruction and the, the Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah has city of the sun, but the Septuagint has a Hebrew word in the Greek translated from the Hebrew. So it retains a Hebrew word and it is the earliest of the translations. So it is, it is polis ascetic, which is a city of righteousness in the Hebrew. So I retain what the... Uh, likely some scribe would not believe that in Egypt there would be a city of righteousness. And so changed it. It's one of the few instances where a scribe may deliberately have changed something in the book of Isaiah. In that day there shall be an altar erected to Jehovah in the midst of the land of Egypt and a monument to Jehovah at its border. Well, an altar means a temple and where would the midst of this land be if not Jackson County, Missouri, where a temple would be built. And an altar, a monument at its border, well, that remains to be seen, but after the saints leave here, what will be left here? They shall serve as a sign of testimony of Jehovah of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to Jehovah because of the oppressors, he will send them a savior who will take up their cause and deliver them. That goes along with DNC. 103, 15 through 20, which talks about our going back to Jackson County, led by one like unto Moses, who leads us out of bondage. So there you have a savior from Isaiah who fits the bill. Not the Lord, a local savior. Jehovah will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians shall know Jehovah in that day. You know what that means? To know is to personally know in person. It's not to know about him. It's like the foolish virgins to whom he said, I didn't know you, because they were not the elect. They had not made sure their callings and elections. These have. They will worship by sacrifice and offerings, the same as those eunuchs and foreigners, which Egyptians are also. What kind of sacrifices and offerings? Well, all pertaining to the law of the Davidic covenant. To pay whatever price is necessary for the deliverance, the physical protection of those to whom he minister. And make vows to Jehovah and fulfill them. Or covenants. And fulfill them? Why does it mention that? Because there are others who make them and don't fulfill them, of course. Jehovah will smite Egypt and by smiting heal it. They will turn back, so it's all by design. It's a good thing. It's to put people in remembrance of God again so they can repent and get their act together. And healing, follow the word heal all the way through Isaiah and you see that eventually it's the elect who are healed or those who repent who are healed. They will turn back to Jehovah and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. It says it right there too. And that day there shall be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. What highway is that? Well, if the Assyrians are in the north countries and the ten tribes are taken captive into Assyria anciently and the evil Assyrians are destroyed and only the righteous Assyrians 
will be the ten tribes that remain, then of course they will return via this highway that the scriptures speak of elsewhere. Assyrians shall come to Egypt and Egyptians go to Assyria and the Egyptians shall labor with the Assyrians. Why not vice versa? Because we have the gospel that we minister to them. So we labor with them. In that day, Israel shall be a third party to Egypt and to Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. Israel? Yes, a blessing in the midst of the earth where Palestine is today. Jehovah of hosts will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. My people is the covenant formula, right? These people is where he disavows or disowns his people when they transgress. My people, your God, is the covenant formula. Egypt, my people? Yes. In the millennium, there are three groups of people. We call them the three natural branches of the olive tree, right? The Jews, Lehi's descendants, and the ten tribes. We have them right here in Isaiah. Jehovah of hosts will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. That will be Lehi's descendants in this land, to whom this land has been promised as a covenant blessing to them and all those who are numbered among them. Assyria, the work of my hands, because it's now speaking of the ten tribes, just as, just as Lehi and his descendants were exiled to America and that became their promised land, so where the ten tribes went into exile, that becomes their promised land. So Assyria is the land that they inherit. As they expand and start communities all over the world, and their stakes, they will expand to where they came from. And all the earth will become sanctified, eventually. And Israel, my inheritance. Well, that will be the Jews. But in the past, he's always said Judea or Judah, right? And yet, the Jews are returning now, and they call themselves Israel. How dare they? They were never Israel before, except kind of in a generic sense, but they were always Jews or Judah or Judea. So why does he now call them Israel? Because now they fully qualify to be called Israel, of course. He acknowledges them that they are Israel now, tr truly, to whom all the blessings of the covenant come. Jacob 5, here we go. It came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard and the servant went down into the vineyard. This is the final scenario. And they came to the tree whose natural branches had been broken off and the wild branches had been grafted in. And behold, all sorts of fruit did cumber the tree. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard did taste of the fruit, every sort according to its number. And the Lord of the vineyard said, Behold, this long time we have nourished this tree and have laid up unto myself against the season much fruit. But behold, this time it has brought forth much fruit, and there is none of it which is good. Behold, there are all kinds of bad fruit, and it profiteth me nothing, notwithstanding all thy labor, and now it grieves me that I should lose this tree. Well, how is that telling of us today? I mean, think about it. If, this, if we are the wild brasses that was grafted in to keep the tree alive, and in the end we don't bring forth fruit, we did, in the first part, it says that in Third Nephi, I mean, First Nephi 13, I believe. And now it's gotten to this state. It came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard said unto the servant, Let us go to and hew down the trees of the vineyard and cast them into the fire, 
that they shall not cumber the ground of my vineyard. For I have done all. But what could I have done more for my vineyard? But behold, the servant said unto the Lord of the vineyard, Spare it a little longer. Kind of like Moses when Moses interceded for Israel when Israel had worshipped the golden calf and he was about to destroy them all and start over again with Moses. He was going to do that. And what did Moses say? Uh Uh-uh. You know. Take my name out of the book of life. All the progress that Moses had gained spiritually to attain a translated level, he was willing to forego as a sacrifice for his people. Then the Lord reneged and accepted his sacrifice and did not destroy them. They lived out their lives in the wilderness and their descendants came into the promised land. And the Lord said, Yea, I will spare it a little longer, for it grieveth me that I should lose the trees of my vineyard. Wherefore, let us take of the branches of these which I have planted in the nethermost parts of my vineyard. And there were three. If you read carefully, there are three. And let us graft them into the tree from whence they came. And let us pluck from, those, from the tree those branches whose fruit is most bitter and graft in the natural branches of the tree in, in the stead thereof. So now there's going to be a cross-grafting. So those branches that are not bitter are going to serve some purpose by being grafted into the other tree and, and vice versa. Wherefore, go to and call servants. There we go. As in the book of Isaiah, when the one servant comes along and starts his mission, soon after other servants appear on the scene. So it is here. That we may labor diligently with our might in the vineyard, that we may prepare the way. Prepare the way for what? Prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. That's an expression that's used in the scriptures, speaking of the coming of the Lord. That I may bring forth again the natural fruit. It's the same in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, where the tree is not giving good fruit. Along comes a shoot or rod, a wild shoot, a water sprout that farmers lop off in the spring. And then into that is a graft or root implanted, which in the end becomes the branch or a new tree that bears good fruit. It's a mini allegory of the olive tree in Isaiah 11, 1. Wherefore, let us go to and labor with our might this last time. That's another key word or expression. It's the last time. There's no more time after this. For behold, the end draweth near. That is the end of the world. The end time. For this is for the last time that I shall prune my vineyard, graft in the branches, begin at the last that they may be first, and the first that they may be last. That's another one of those scriptural expressions that means that when the Jews reject the gospel, it goes to the Gentiles, and when the Gentiles reject the gospel, it goes back to the Jews, or to all the house of Israel. It's all over the place in the scriptures, even in Easter. And dig about the trees, both old and young, the first and the last, the last and the first. What's that about? Well, the Lord is the last. He's the first and the last. So what he started in the beginning, he's going to finish at the end. That all may be nourished once again for the last time. Wherefore, dig about them and prune them and dung them, dung them once more for the last time, for the end draweth nigh. And if it's so, right after this work, that's the end. This is the last time anything's going to happen in the vineyard. And if it so be that these last grafts shall grow and bring forth the natural fruit, then shall you prepare the way for them that they may grow. And here we have from Jeremiah something along the same lines. 
Behold, the days come, says Jehovah, that it shall no more be said, Jehovah lives, who brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. When do people say that? They say it at Passover when they're reciting Israel's coming out of Egypt. So in the millennial age, they're not going to celebrate the Passover anymore, not that Passover, but the new Passover and the new Exodus. The Exodus from, of Israel coming from all four, four, four directions to Zion or to the promised land in the end time. But Jehovah lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north, from all the lands where he had driven them, and I will bring them again into their land that I gave to their fathers. Behold, I will send for many fishers, says Jehovah. We have them today. The missionaries going forth in our day. And they will fish them. And afterwards, I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt them. That's the 144,000. Those are the other servants that we mentioned. From every mountain, from every hill, and out of the holes of the rocks. Holes of the rocks? Well, yeah, Spencer sees that. DNC 133. And they who are in the north country shall come into remembrance before the Lord, and their prophets shall hear his voice, and shall no longer stay themselves. And they shall smite the rocks. So they've been staying themselves now. They had power to do things, but they didn't have the Lord's permission, or it was not his will. And they were solicitous to do his will and not go beyond the power that they had. And they shall smite the rocks. So this is what translated beings do, right? They have power over the elements. And who are these prophets? Anyway, well, some of their own prophets, as Spencer sees, and some translated beings. And the ice shall flow down at their presence. So they're coming from what would now be Alaska, at least there. And the highway shall be cast up in the midst of the great deep. Well, there was that highway from Egypt to Assyria, right? That would be from America to where? To Siberia or wherever. Their enemies shall become a prey unto them. When? When they reach the level of God's elect. Then the covenants, curses of their covenants come upon their enemies. But not until then. And in the barren deserts there shall come forth pools of living water. And the parched ground shall no longer be a thirsty land. And they shall bring forth their rich treasures unto the children of Ephraim, my servants. The children of Ephraim, my servants. There's the word servants again. So who are the 144,000? Ephraimites. Yes, but there are 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes. Don't you read that? Yes. But where do we have the type and shadow for them? Since everything in the end time has a type and shadow in the past. Well, the 12 apostles of Jesus' day were to be judges over the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And they were Jews. Judah, Benjamin, and Levi for the most part, though they may have had some of the other lineages, possibly. And we may have other lineages as Ephraimites. How long have we been assimilated into the Gentiles now? For two and a half thousand years or more. So, of course, you know, you have other lineages too. But basically, it's a way of organizing his kingdom. And the boundaries of the everlasting hills shall tremble at their presence, and there shall they fall down and be crowned with glory, even in Zion. I dare say that those rich treasures are their records, as Spencer sees, not just, you know, gold and silver, because that will be in abundance anywhere at that time. Crowned with glory. Well, you know, spiritual glory, that is. 
even in Zion, by the hands of the servants of the Lord. Well, those who have the sealing power, of course, even the children of Ephraim. And they shall, there is Ephraim fulfilling his birthright role. So some of us, there is hope, are going to do it. And they shall be filled with songs of everlasting joy. Actually, Spencer mentions that directly uh, as they brought people through the portals, carrying them in their arms or holding on to them. They brought them through the portals directly in an instant. In an instant, they were there in Zion. Behold, this is the blessing of the everlasting God upon the tribes of Israel and the richer blessing upon the head of Ephraim and his fellows. You know, it says that of Joseph, that Joseph was blessed more than his brothers. Why? Because Joseph was sold down their tubes by the other brothers. He paid a price for that. He was pure. He didn't fornicate with that woman that made those advances against him. Who knows the things that he saw in visions and the things that he wrote because of his purity? The pure in heart shall see God, right? Sermon on the Mount. So we can expect persecution. Those who fulfill these roles can expect persecution from their brethren, from their own brethren, before they are empowered to this degree to fulfill those roles. Before Joseph was empowered, he had to go through all that hell. Then the Exodus. When you cross the waters, I will be with you. When you traverse the rivers, you shall not be overwhelmed. Though you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Its flame shall not consume you. For I, Jehovah, am your God. I, the Holy One of Israel, am your Savior. Egypt I have appointed as a ransom for you. Cush and Seba give in place of you. Well, we could go into detail about that, but we don't have time. But while many are dying in Egypt because of Egypt's wickedness, collective guilt, these Egyptians, these covenanters, these saviors on Mount Zion are not subject to that destruction. Because you are precious and revered in my eyes and because I love you, because of his covenant relationship with the house of Israel, he loves them, I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. Who are these men in exchange for you? The proxy saviors, for, for one, they have suffered, they have gone through the pain to pay for your deliverance. For your physical protection, your temporal salvation. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give up, to the south, withhold that. Just like Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. The sons and daughters are the elect. It's the elect level at that point those who have made sure they can't election. Not just sons and daughters because they've been baptized, but sons and daughters of God because they've become the elect. They've walked up to every covenant made in the temple. And the Father makes with them an unconditional oath and covenant after they have proven faithful. All who are called by my name, whom I have formed, molded, and wrought for my own glory, he has recreated them into his own image and likeness. As we mentioned before, God created man and woman in his image and likeness, male and female. But it doesn't say that of anybody else, not until we reach this point. It doesn't say it of anybody. It says it of the brother and Jared, because he had reached that point. Arise, shine, your light has dawned. 
The glory of Jehovah has risen upon you. Although darkness covers the earth and the thickness the peoples upon you, Jehovah will shine over you. His glory shall be visible. Well, Isaiah says that in chapter 4, but Spencer sees it, right? When the cloud of glory rests upon them, that's his glory protecting those groups of people. All around them is darkness. Darkness is a pseudonym of the king of Assyria. The light is a pseudonym of the Lord's servant, the Lord's end-time servant. He's appointed as a light to the nations in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. So there you have the contrast. The one is taking the world into darkness, into destruction. The other is taking them into the light, into the light of God, where eventually the Lord becomes their light. That's in Isaiah. A thick mist, these are, darkness and thick mist are chaos motifs. They go down to chaos, they're, they're decreated, while the light is the creation motif, and they are recreated and closer to God's image and likeness. Nations will come to your light, their kings to the brightness of your dawn. These nations are the elect of Israel. The house of Israel being brought out of obscurity and out of darkness, like the sons of Messiah brought the Lamanites. Lift up your eyes, look about you. They have all assembled to come to you. Your son shall arrive from afar. Your daughter shall return to your side. Then when you see it, your face will light up. Your heart will swell with awe. The multitude of the sea shall resort to you. A host of nations shall enter you. A myriad of camels will cover your land. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and frankincense and heralding the praises of Jehovah. Because, as we saw in Isaiah, they sing as they go along. They sing hymns of praise as they come in the Exodus, like anciently the pilgrimages to Zion. All Kedos flocks I will gather to you, will gather to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. They shall be accepted as offerings on my altar, and thus will I make glorious my house of glory. Well, who are the rams of Nebaioth? You know, well, the proxy saviors, I would say who are the ones offering. And now they themselves are also offering themselves as sacrifices to the Lord. Who are these aloft like clouds flying as doves through their portals? From the, as doves through their portals, maybe, huh? Because that's what Spencer predicts. He sees it as he takes some, the most pure, through the portals directly without having to walk through the journey of several years to get to Zion. Because that journey needed the time for them to become more sanctified and rise up to the level of God's elect. From the isles they're gathering to me, the ships of Tarshish in the lead, to bring back your children from afar, with them their silver and gold, to Jehovah omnipotent your God, to the Holy One of Israel who has made you illustrious. What's all the gold and silver for? To spend upon their lusts, like people are doing in our day today? Of course not. It's to beautify the temple and all the places around uh, in the Zion community. Foreigners will rebuild your walls and their kings minister to you. Here you see the foreigners and the kings in the synonymous parallel, both the spiritual and the physical. So the kings of the foreigners, the, the kings of the Gentiles. Though I struck you in anger, I will gladly show you mercy. Your gate shall always remain open. They shall not be shut day or night that a host of nations may be brought to you and their kings escorted in. 
This is the exodus. This is the great exodus all happening all over the world at the same time, just as Spencer sees it. In fact, Jeremiah predicts that God's that kings of the house of David will come in in their entourages into the, to the temple in Jerusalem. And Abraham was promised of the Lord that kings would come out of his loins. Well, the only kings are the ones we are or can become as kings and queens of the Gentiles, spiritual kings. The Lord has it in. He condemns the kings, the political kings of the world. They go down into the pit, as he, as he says in other parts of Isaiah. So he's not talking about them. He's talking about the spiritual kings, who also become political kings, however, in the millennial reign, when they reign with him for a thousand years. Hear me, you who know righteousness, O people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men, be undaunted by their ridicule, for the moth shall consume them like a garment, moth shall devour them like wool, but my righteousness shall endure forever, my salvation through endless generations. So righteousness is one of the names of the servant. We found that, we did that, we covered that in our last, the session before the last one last one, where righteousness is a person who comes from the east in chapter 41, verse 2. Because he personifies righteousness, he keeps every commandment of God on, on his elect level or on his seraph level. So those who know righteousness have some kind of covenant relationship with him because the Lord calls him, appoints him as his covenant to the nations. Remember that? Chapters 42 and 49 the servant is appointed as a covenant to the Gentiles, or to the nations. He personifies God's covenant. So if they know righteousness, they know him personally, and, and they know him to the point that they're covenanting with God, with the servant as the, his mediator, or the mediator of God's covenant. To know is a covenant term in Hebrew covenant theology. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. O people in whose heart is my law, because those are the only ones that will listen, do not fear the reproach of men, because you're going to get persecution. Blessed are you, and then persecute you, and speak all manner of evil of you falsely, for my name's sake, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Because, on that, because at that time, when you get to that point, you are on the level of a prophet, in your own right. Not a prophet to the church, the head of the church is, but you are a prophet in your own right, nevertheless. And the moth consuming them is like is a covenant curse. Hear the word of Jehovah, you are vigilant for his word. So your brethren who abhor you and exclude you because of my name say, as I mentioned, these are their own brothers and sisters. They exclude you, they ostracize you, they call you fringe and so forth. They exclude you. They don't want you in the congregations and so forth. They throw you out of the synagogue, as did Jesus, as did the man who was blind and he was healed. Those are all types. Vigilant for his word because you're like the sons of Messiah who search the word of God diligently that they might know it. Know it in full. They say, let the Lord 
let Jehovah manifest his glory that we may see cause for your joy. Why are you so happy all the time? Why do you have all this zeal about you? You know, calm down. You guys are zealots. You're modern-day zealots. You're groupies. Last day's groupies. <laughs> Whatever. Doesn't matter what they say. I don't consider myself a last day's groupie. <laughs> That's what... It's what the Lord thinks of me that I am, not what they say, right? I'm willing to take hits for learning his word and believing it and and trying to live it and doing what he asks. But it is they who shall suffer shame, for the shame that they force unto others will come upon them in full. Where? It starts upon my house, right? On my house shall it begin. Here it is, six. Sixty-six, six. How about that? Hark a tumult from the city, a noise from the temple. It is the voice of the Lord paying his enemies what is due them. And who are his enemies? As he makes clear in other parts of Isaiah, the enemies of his own people, from his own people. Before she is in labor, Zion gives birth. Before her ordeal overtakes her, she delivers a son. That is the servant. That is the, the male child, the woman who flees into the wilderness in the book of Revelation, gives birth to. That is the savior that he sends to his people in Egypt. That is the deliverer, a new Moses, in D&C 103, verses 15 through 20. And with the son come, come other deliverers, the 144,000. They all become deliverers and saviors as he is. Who has heard the like or seen such things? Nobody was expecting this, not this. They had their own little paradigms of the scriptures, but not this one. Can the earth labor by the day, that is, the Lord's day of judgment, a time still future, of about seven years or so, and a nation be born at once? Yes, that rapidly as Spencer sees in his book. Once the 144,000 begin their work, the nation is born in a day. In that day of judgment, they gather God's elect from throughout the earth, and they become the new Zion, the new people of Zion, of which Enoch's Zion was a type. For as soon as she was in labor, Zion gave birth to her children. It's called the birth pangs of the Messiah, as God's people were in Egypt, suffering in distress, they cried to the Lord for deliverance. He sent them a deliverer, Moses. And Moses is one of the great types of the servant, not only in D&C 103, but in Isaiah, throughout Isaiah. Shall I bring to a crisis and not bring on birth? So the Lord is bringing on the crisis himself because everybody is going to have to prove themselves. And those Gentiles who harden their hearts, they are in the act of condemning themselves. But their self-condemnation has to run its course. They have to, in the end, fight against Zion so that they can go out of the picture. And those who do not fight against Zion but who repent have to rise to the occasion and bear it in humility and not return railing for railing and so forth, which they might be tempted to do. 
but they don't. So the crisis is going to bring on birth. The deliverer is going to be born, and with the birth of the deliverer, meaning that he comes to power, then the Lord empowers him after he goes through his descent phase, then his ascent phase, the Lord empowers him on the seraph level as a translated being. Then nobody can hurt him anymore. He heals him from being marred, as we read. What kind of healing is that? Well, if he's translated, isn't that healing? When it is I who caused the birth, shall I hinder it, says your God? Because as we see elsewhere in the book of Isaiah, there are those who are trying to oppose the Lord's work and saying this is not the Lord's work, he's done his work, so that the Father has to do his own work. And what is this work? And why the Father? Because those 144,000 answer to the Father. They have the Father's name on their foreheads to protect them against the elements, to empower them over the elements. As I mentioned, the three Nephites inherit the kingdom of the Father. They answer directly to the Father at that point in time. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all who love her. Well, to love her means you give yourself for them. You give yourself for that person or for that community or for that people. That's love. Love is charity. But charity is an is a different kind of love than just common love. It's an enduring love. It pays whatever price is necessary. It endures to the very end for love of that person or that people. Join in her celebration all who mourn for her. They mourn for her because of her circumstances. And they wanted to do something about it. And did. And now they did it. It's like when the fight is over. And what's that boxer that fights and fights until finally he knocks that guy out? He's just a little guy. It's in a movie. And he's fighting and he's fighting. Hmm? Rocky. Rocky, yeah. <laughs> it's a long time since I watched movies. But when it's all over, he's still agitated. He still wants to go. He said, calm down. You did it. You really did it. It's over. How about that? Thus said Jehovah, as when there is juice in a cluster of grapes, and someone says, don't destroy it, it is still good. Like that servant. Don't cut down the trees. Let's give it another chance. He put himself out there. If he hadn't said a word, if he just kept mum, the Lord might indeed have, have done that. But the Lord was also trying his servant to see what he would do, right? So we must see the need and fulfill it like the servant did. So will I do for the sake of my servants, because it's for their sake that he saves some of the grapes that are left by not destroying everything. The grapes are the, are, the, are, are the house of Israel. I will extract offspring out of Jacob, out of Judah, heirs of my mountains. My chosen ones shall inherit them. My servants shall dwell there. Here's another one. Surely you are our father, though Abraham does not know us. This is the house of Israel speaking in its last and fallen state. Or Israel recognizes, You, Jehovah, our, our Father, our Redeemer from eternity, is your name. Why, O Jehovah, have you made us stray from your ways, hardening our hearts so that we do not fear you? Really? This is the Jacob-Israel level. 
You'll see that in the book of Isaiah. When they first begin their mission to the house of Israel, they're still in a lost and fallen state. The house of Israel, on the Jacob-Israel level, are those who are complaining, those who are fainting, those who are still in a sinful state. They blame God for their troubles, like they do here. He's not responsible. It was their own bad choices that got them into this cursed state. And what do they say? Relent for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. So now they're appealing to proxy saviors. They're appealing to God for the proxy saviors' sake to deliver them. And the servants are in parallel with the tribes that are your inheritance. So the servants here are, are synonymous with the tribes, and indeed they're appointed to be judges over the twelve tribes of Israel. See? Isaiah even has that hidden away in this little nook. If you'll catch it. But you shall be called the priests of Jehovah and referred to as the ministers of our God. You shall feed on the wealth of the nations and be gratified with their choicest provisions. This is in the millennial age. Because they will so honor you for having brought them back to an elect level and brought them to Zion. They will so honor you for doing that for them. When you were vulnerable and you needed a savior, they came through for you. But they also suffered for you because their shame was twofold. They were ostracized and shouted insults were their lot. Where? Right here in Happy Valley, right here wherever we live. Therefore in their land shall their inheritance be twofold. The birthright role, the birthright inheritance, who had a twofold portion, because he fulfilled his birthright role, more was expected of him. Their inheritance shall be twofold, and everlasting joy be theirs. Remember what he says of the three Nephites, that their joy shall be full. Jesus says, even as my joy is full. And his joy is full, even as the Father's is full because they were willing to go through whatever it took, whatever decent was necessary, whatever price was to be paid to fulfill their missions upon the earth. For I, Jehovah, love just dealings, but I abhor extortion in those who sacrifice. Why does it mention extortion in those who sacrifice? Because you are taken, these saviors are taken from among people who are making covenants and not fulfilling them as we saw in Isaiah 19, who are going to the temple and offering sacrifices while they're extorting people in their business dealings. There's a disconnect between their spiritual lives, so-called, maybe we should call them religious lives, and their temporal lives. I, the Lord, love just dealings. You can't kid yourself when it comes to the Lord. I will appoint them a sure reward I will make with them an eternal covenant. That is, an unconditional covenant. At that point, because they have proven themselves faithful through all, under all conditions that the Lord tested them under. Their offspring shall be renowned among the nations, their posterity in the midst of peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are the lineage Jehovah has blessed. And this is one of them speaking. I rejoice exceedingly in Jehovah. My soul delights in my God. For he clothes me in garments of salvation. He arrays me in a robe of righteousness. Like a bridegroom dressed in priestly attire or a bride adorned with her jewels. 
the jewels are her offspring, her descendants. She symbolizes the train behind the. Tr- the reason a bride wears a train behind her is symbolizes her offspring, her posterity. The jewels she wears symbolizes her elect posterity. These are precious stones, not common metals and stones. For as the earth brings forth its vegetation as a garden that causes what is sown to spring up in it, so will my Lord Jehovah cause righteousness and praise to spring up in the presence of all nations. Imagine what Zion will be like. It will be a praise to all nations. There the Lord will dwell, and his light and his glory will go forth from there to all the earth, to Zion and her stakes, and from there to cover the entire earth. And then eventually the earth is celestialized at the end of the millennium, at the end of thousand years of terrestrial time, right? And here you see the division between the one and the other. They lived together. They were brethren. They went to church together. They were friends. Now look at them. My servant shall eat indeed while you shall hunger. Covenant blessing, covenant curse. Covenant blessing, covenant curse. My servant shall drink indeed while you shall thirst. My servant shall rejoice indeed, while you shall be dismayed. These are the guys that persecuted them, persecuted them to death. Wouldn't let them go. They were like their personal demons. It seems like every savior also has his personal demon. My servant shall rejoice indeed, while you shall be dismayed. My servant shall shout indeed for gladness of heart, while you shall cry out with heartbreak, howling from brokenness of spirit. Because there is weeping and gnashing of teeth now among those who thought they, were the, they were, thought they were the chosen, elect of God. Remember, those who persecute are not on the right. It's always a sign that you're on the wrong side. Your name shall be left to serve my chosen ones as a curse. Well, we have Sodom and Gomorrah to provide an example of that. When my Lord Jehovah slays you, but his servants he will call by a different name a new name that they receive on that highest spiritual level, which is a key word that cannot be revealed except to the one who is given. Those of them who invoke blessings on themselves in the earth, that's in the millennial age, shall do so by the true God, and those of them who swear oaths in the earth shall do so by the God of truth, or again, by the true God. Because... Before that, they were swearing oaths and not by the the God of truth. They tried to manipulate God, to contort him down to their own concept of God, that God would tolerate a little sin here and there, while they made sacred oaths that ran contrary to what their lifestyle was. God can't countenance that. I think this next scripture is one of the most beautiful in our scriptures. It describes a parity covenant. In the ancient Near East, there were covenants between emperors. And they were parity covenants because they were covenants between equals. All for one, one for all. So, if the 144,000 had these parity covenants, then if you're going to take out one of them, you're going to have to take out all of them. That's going to be impossible. Because nobody has that kind of power, except God. And he's the one who empowers them. TNC 88. And this shall be the order of the house of the presidency of the school. He that is appointed to be president or teacher shall be found standing in his place, 
in the house which shall be prepared for him. Therefore, he shall be first in the house of God, in the place that the congregation in the house may hear his words carefully and distinctly, not with loud speech. And when he cometh into the house of God, for he should be first in the house, behold, this is beautiful, that it may be an example, let him offer himself in prayer upon his knees before God, in token or remembrance of the everlasting covenant. You remember when Jesus prayed amidst the Nephites, after he was resurrected, after he had atoned for this world, after he qualified to inherit his father's throne, he kneeled and bent himself down to the earth to pray to the Most High God, his Father. Think about all of that and all of that that it signifies. And then think about every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. God is not going to force anyone to do that, but when we think of Christ and the depth of meaning behind his atonement and all that it involved, and give him that honor and that due and that glory, who appears to us as a man and as a brother who welcomes us into his arms that way, and yet he's so far beyond us. And when any shall come in after him, let the teacher arise and with uplifted hands to heaven, yea, even directly, salute his brother or brethren with these words. Art thou a brother or brethren? I salute you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in token or remembrance of the everlasting covenant, in which covenant I receive you to fellowship in a determination that is fixed, immovable, and unchangeable, to be your friend and brother through the grace of God in the bonds of love, to walk in all the commandments of God, blameless in thanksgiving forever and ever. Amen. That is a covenant between equals. To me, this is the fellowship of the suffering of Christ that Spencer speaks of. To me, this is the parody covenant between those of the 144,000 who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They are one with Him. They are one in Him. They are one with each other. They all know each other, as Spencer says. They're all aware of each other at all times in all places because they all have that knowledge to see everywhere at once. And he that is found unworthy of this salutation shall not have place among you, for you shall not suffer that mine house shall be polluted by him. Well, wow. And he that cometh, and is, cometh in and is faithful before me and is a brother, or if they be brethren, they shall salute the president or teacher with uplifted hands to heaven with the same prayer and covenant or by saying amen in token of the same. So they can recite it back. I think they would memorize it, don't you think? <clears throat> Behold, verily I say unto you, this is an example unto you for a salutation to one another in the house of God in the school of the prophets. And ye are called to do this by prayer and thanksgiving, as the spiritual give utterance in all your doings in the house of the Lord, in the school of the prophets, that they may become a that it may become a sanctuary, a tabernacle of the Holy Spirit to your edification. Well, the temple can be a sanctuary. Unfortunately, 
the prophets teach that there may be cases of such, but the houses have been polluted by, the, by, by those who attend. A tabernacle of the Holy Spirit, your edification, which we also are individually. Isaiah says that a couple of times. And you shall not receive any among you into the school, save he is clean from the blood of this generation. And how do you become clean of the blood of this generation? How? By becoming a proxy savior and fulfilling your role as such. I don't know of any other way. Not by becoming a member of the church, that's not enough. By fulfilling your birthright role. By ascending to those higher spiritual levels and fulfilling your callings on, on the earth that you were foreordained to fulfill. Some callings are not to fulfill that. Some people come to this earth and fulfill a certain measure of their spiritual progression. That's okay. That's all they were destined to do. They have the chance to fulfill it all, but because of their spiritual progression up to this point, there's only some, so much they could do in one lifetime. And we'll end it there. So we, again, did not have time to answer questions. Which we will next time. I'm going to promise you that we will have time next time. I think the next time we're going to get into um, Charles D. Evans's vision of this land. You familiar with that? Let's see how it ties into Isaiah. It's much shorter. Charles Evans's vision is in the back of the book Visions of Glory. This concludes Lecture 5, The Mission of the 144,000. Be sure to visit IsaiahExplained.com as well as IsaiahInstitute.com to learn more about Isaiah with Dr. Abraham Giliotti.